Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. So glad you can join us. We are diving into the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. I am joined today by our worship tech director, Bill Mayer. Hey guys, welcome back. We've got some theological sausage for you today. It's going to be deep. We are going to have our minds blown and hopefully pick up the pieces. Also, Bill, what are you drinking over there? You got a mug that has it's sweating. Is there something cold in there? Uh, yes, I've been actually making iced coffee in the Keurig, and then uh, after the cup cools down, I put it in the freezer. Oh, nice. Uh, in the ice freezer. And I uh, pull it out and put some ice in there. So this is the after 12 noon iced coffee. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to drink co- hot coffee late. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just brewed a nice piping hot cup of black coffee the way it ought to be drunk. And uh, so, yeah, I was curious there, peering over. Anyway, getting distracted. My coffee is still black. Though. It is still black. It's just very cold. <laughs> oh, coffee. We are going to need some caffeine. All right. So uh, we, we have been in a series, we are in a series, Binge the Bible. Uh, we are reading the Bible in six months, and we are this week finishing uh, 2 Samuel. So we are going to go back, and we are going to talk about 1 Samuel in this episode of the podcast. And then we are going to record, pre-record, uh, the following week's podcast for 2 Samuel today. So if you're following on Sundays and Wednesdays, you may see that there's a little bit of a variation in approach here, just because... Our whole staff is heading to Orlando for the Exponential Conference, and we are not going to be here to record at a regular time, so we're recording early, and so you may pick up on that. But before we jump into 2 Samuel, we're going to start in 1 Samuel. So uh, as a reminder, uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are part of one larger literary work that is attributed to Samuel the prophet, and much of the early portion of um, this book comes from Samuel and has been entrusted to and carried into this finished work through the other prophets, Nathan and Gad, as well as uh, data contributed from other sources like the book of Yasher and other other places where uh, wars are chronicled and details are kept. But this is one literary work and it is beautiful and brilliant and deep and um it is, it's got symmetry, and it's got nuance, and it's got an incredible opening introduction. It's got a brilliant epilogue. There's so much uh, balance and contrast and so many literary features that um, my mind is just like scrambled eggs, but in the best possible way. So we're going to get into some of those uh, elements today, and then we're also going to do the same for next week as we look at uh, Second Samuel, and we'll conclude Samuel as a work, and then we're jumping right into Kings. But... Let's um, let's start with 1 Samuel. On Sunday, um, we had an incredible worship service, three incredible worship services. Um, they were all a little bit different, but the Lord was powerfully present. We had some incredible response time, just humbling ourselves before the Lord in His presence and just coming hungry. And uh, the Lord responded to that in just a really tangible way, all three services. But the last service, when there wasn't another service to get out of the way for um, many of us just lingered in the Lord's presence for uh, over an hour, actually. We, I don't think, I think there was still people there at 2 o'clock. Yeah, I don't think we left till like 2.30. Um, but we, man, I just couldn't even be up there. Like I just sat there and wept the whole time, basically. It was, it was just incredibly powerful. 
And uh, we're so grateful when the Lord shows up that way and we just encounter his presence. And I was telling the staff in our staff meeting this past week, uh, I get these beautiful and deep theological questions from Evie, our 13-year-old daughter. And she came in uh, as we were tucking our, her sisters into bed um, Sunday night. And she said, Dad, when God shows up like that, is that because he just does it and he just decides he wants to? Or is it because that we're hungry and we're asking for for it? And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't know. That's like hard. Like, God's God. He can do whatever he wants and show up whenever he wants, however he wants. But, um, you know, his promise is that when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And if we're hungry for him and asking for him, he he gives good gifts. He gives his Holy Spirit to his children. And so, like, it's both and, and I don't know what it is this time, but, like, why don't you go ask God? <laughs> why don't you pray about that and see what he says? And um, But it was just beautiful. It was really a beautiful way to spend the weekend. And um, the sermon content was largely based out of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's song, in which Hannah recounts the nature and character of God in her own deliverance, uh, her humble um, submission to God's purposes, but her pleading to God in, in a personal deep relationship, and then God's meaningful answer to her prayer that resulted in the conception and birth of her first son, Samuel, and the breaking of her barrenness. And then, you know, in her in her commitment and her vow that she made to God, she gives Samuel to the purposes of God under the Nazarite vow and to the Lord's work in the temple under the leadership of Eli, who's a terrible priest, and his sons are even worse, and um, goes to visit him year after year. But in this song, she really highlights the key themes that we see in Samuel, both first and second Samuel. And that is essentially that um, we're called into a, a humble and Godward way of living, and we recognize who God is and what God does, then we ought to have this reverent fear toward him and humility before him and love towards him. And then he is the one who then um, brings judgment and justice upon the evil and the wicked, but he also um, he flattens the proud and he exalts the humble. And so it really doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what pain you're going through, to come with your full self before God um, and to delight yourself in him and his purposes and his timing and that sincere humility evokes uh, the attention of God and the exaltation that God brings. And it's in that exaltation that we're able to give God all the glory and not make it about us and not, um, not be corrupted. And so David ends up being the kind of archetype of Hannah's song in that he's obscure and he's unknown but he also doesn't let his exaltation go to his head and he continues to give God glory for all of the thi- all of the things but he's not a perfect person obviously there's there's treachery murder adultery i mean there's some david commits some heinous heinous sins with terrible consequences for himself um, his offspring his his wife his uh, one of his mighty men Uriah the Hittite um, and for the nation of Israel and even that's where second samuel concludes which we'll get to next week um, just kind of the the down the downfalls of David and what that means, and yet consistently he presents a, a Godward humility and gives God all of the glory for all the deliverance and all of the victory, and even to his old age, he 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 doesn't doesn't corrupt his exaltation by taking credit for it, and so this is what Hannah puts forward, and so we we open the sermon on Sunday with that, and um, I saw it, I brought a bunch of. Stories, and I wasn't sure which ones um, from First Samuel that I was going to use as kind of like the ongoing unfolding of those themes. And I tried to use a bunch of them in the first service by reading the text, which is my preference. And then I kind of summarized and l- shared less of those texts in the second service. And by the third service, I was just summarizing and paraphrasing. So there was a significant amount of variety between the services this week, which isn't typical. Um, but in all three services, we talked about 
um, how God doesn't need a king and God doesn't need us. And we are invited into God's purposes, but he is well capable of doing whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, without any human intervention. And 1 Samuel chapter 5 really um, gave us a, a picture of that as the Ark of the Covenant is stolen and then um, God humbles the God of the Philistines, Dagon, twice over decapitating him and cutting off his hands, which is just a picture of he's a lifeless and powerless God. Um, and then inflicting the, the same plagues on the Philistines that caused the Philistines to then send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And so they didn't go recover God. God's perfectly well capable of taking care of himself and taking care of his people. And so he is actually the one who is meant to be their king. And so we are going to eventually have the resolve between does God want a human king or does God want to be king in the fact that the answer is yes. And that is that yes is um, is uh, brought together in the person of Jesus. So he is the human king, but he is the God king. And so in the meantime, Samuel is functioning to show us in the chaos of a uh, failure of human leadership in the tribal period of the judges post-conquest, and there was no king in the land, we see what how bad things get when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and the leaders among the, the Levites and the tribal leaders, the clan leaders, and even the judges um, essentially are, are corrupt and corruptible. And so there's a, there's a polemic, there's a defense there for a king. And so God gives the people the king that they deserve, and then he gives them the type of king that they need. And so that is what 1 Samuel starts out. It, it has this, um, we kind of track the rise and fall of King Saul, which is overlapped by the rise to prominence of King David. And then when we get into 2 Samuel, we're going to see the, the demise of, of David, his own personal sin, and then how that's exacerbated in his family and through some, I mean, just awful stories, and yet how God ends up being faithful to him and uh, how he continues to be Godward, keep his promises, keep his oaths, do what's right, uh, honor who's worthy of honor because of who God says they are and, and not how they affect him. And then we see how kind of Second Samuel concludes with, hope for the future, and then also the reality that David is not the man. And so this is kind of like how Samuel ends. But as we go through uh, 1 Samuel, I wanted to hit a couple of the questions that um, were sent in. Um, I, I kind of alluded to this more in the third service on Sunday than any other service, but there's a lot of uh, literary balance that Samuel uses. And one of those was the uh, juxtaposition of the tearing of Samuel's cloak as um, Saul is trying to maintain control of Samuel's uh, perception of Samuel's blessing um, at his rejection in chapter 15, and where Sa Saul had sought the Lord. Had, we, see, we see Saul's fall in a couple different ways. The first way is he's, he's not waiting patiently for the Lord. Samuel is delayed, and instead of waiting for Samuel, to make the sacrifice, to make the offering, um, he does it. He seeks the Lord on his own behalf, and he's condemned by Saul for doing this. And we're told that the people are scattering. Uh, Samuel's delayed, the people are afraid, and Saul's afraid of the people. And so he steps into a role that he ought not to step into. And so that was kind of like strike number one. And then when he is commissioned by God to uh, put out the Amalekites, he does that, but not fully. He retains King Agag for himself as a, a war trophy and an an expression of his own uh, ingenuity and power. And then he also keeps the best of their livestock, which he says after the fact he was going to sacrifice to the Lord, but that seems to be some blame shifting and some, 
um, some fibbing there that he was, they were carrying off. He's trying to keep his generals happy. And so he's giving, he's giving everybody a little bounty when he's not supposed to. And so he's opposed by Samuel for doing this. And, um, he tries to defend himself and then he tries to blame shift. And then when, when, uh, Samuel says you're rejected, he's, he grabs a hold of his robe and tears his robe. And then, so you get this story of Saul trying to maintain control and the tearing of the robe. And then that that's juxtaposed to chapter 24 when uh, Saul is in the cave and David is unbeknownst to him behind him. And David has an opportunity to kill his enemy. And you would think justly, I mean, Saul has attempted to murder him, I think seven times by the time you get to 24 um, from, from hoping that he dies in the, the bride price for his daughter in warring against the Philistines with the 144 skins to actually throwing a spear at him to hunting him and telling other people to kill him. So if anybody's justified in actually killing Saul, it would be David. And yet over and over and over again in 1 Samuel, you get this phrase from David that he would not lay his hand against the Lord's anointed. And in fact, when the man who actually kills Saul comes to report that to David, thinking he'll be happy an Amalekite sojourner and says, yeah, I put a sword right through him. And um, Saul had him ex- or David had him executed immediately because he struck down the Lord's anointed. He said, weren't you afraid to strike down the Lord's anointed? The point here is that David is committed to the purposes of God. And even if the leader who God has chosen is evil, David is not going to get in the way of doing God's work for him. And so David in 1 Samuel 24 cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. And then, you know, Saul finishes his business, comes out of the cave. And then David raises up in a loud voice and and so you have these two stories that are symmetrical that show the tearing of a cloak, and yet they're opposite from each other. Saul is tearing the cloak of Samuel, trying to maintain control in the public perception of Samuel's support of him, pleading with him and trying to grasp self-preservation. And then David is not self-preserving. Instead, he's doing what's right, even at great cost to himself and demonstrating uh, his integrity and his faithfulness. And so there's a lot of these types of literary uh, balances and, and juxtapositions throughout Samuel. And I'm sure if you read through there, um, you'll pick up on them. And the next time you read it, you'll pick up on more. And the next time you read it, you'll pick up on more. And so I thought that was just a, a beautiful illustration of uh, how that contrast is made between kind of pride and humility, self-centeredness and God-centeredness um, through stories that really mimic each other. So um, two of the questions that we got, one was... Uh, when David asked for the ephod to inquire of the Lord in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, would the priests have actually been the one to wear it and use the Urim and the Thummim since David was from the tribe of Judah? And this is going to be a question that is going to play out in this week's podcast and next week because this actually is a theme that develops strongly through uh, 2 Samuel. And if you've read it so far, if, if you're listening to this in real time, then you may have a day left of reading in 2 Samuel. But there is, there is just instance after instance after instance of David functioning in a priestly way. There's interceding, there is uh, seeking the Lord's voice, there is uh, altars built, there are sacrifices made, there is David wearing the ephod, uh, David's sons are said to be priests, David springs the ark to Jerusalem after he conquers it. He is making the religious center of Israel in Jerusalem. He's doing all of these things that are very, very clearly priestly duties without any condemnation by Samuel and no opposition from God. And in fact, in in the end of 2 Samuel, which we'll get to, it's actually his mediation that brings about the resolution of God's judgment. And so, yeah, very, very insightful. That's definitely one of the things that Samuel is doing here is he is 
painting David as a priest king. And this is, again, contrasted to Saul, whose um, condemnation came when he sacrificed to the Lord without Samuel being there. I mean, Saul did the same thing that David did, but it was acceptable for David and not acceptable for Saul. And yet, Saul, we see, is uh, has the Holy Spirit come upon him and multiple times is prophesying. And people are even, there's this refrain in 1 Samuel of, is Saul among the prophets? Like, I'm confused. Is he the king or is he a prophet? And he's actually both. There's a there's a flattening between the role of, of prophet and king between in Saul's um, anointing, which is distinct from David's anointing, which is a flattening of king and priest. Now, ultimately, Christ is going to become prophet, priest, and king. He's he is the uh, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. No, he is not of the line of Levite, but he is of the line of Judah, and so is David, his father. And so you're seeing there is this um, there's this priestly role that happens through David of Judah that is not a part of the anointing that is upon Saul of Benjamin. And so those things are going to come together. And, and uh, Bill and I, we actually have not had time to like thoroughly exhaust the text to be able to pull all the pieces. But there's even phrases um, where David says of himself in the epilogue of 2 Samuel where he's talking about the spirit of the Lord is upon me to speak the, the words of the Lord. And so like that's, that's sounding prophetic as well. But it's again a picture of the type of king that God is after, who David symbolizes, but but is not. So yes, that should have caught your attention. Um, is he king or is he priest? Is Saul king or is he prophet? And God is putting a certain kind of anointing on each of these two. I think it's also interesting, there's some balance between the first time Saul prophesies as he comes in the spirit of the Lord after his anointing um, as Samuel, and before he's inaugurated, he prophesies. But he prophesies again when he's actually trying to kill David and David is among the prophets. And so he goes to the prophets to kill David. And then when he comes, the spirit of the Lord comes on him and he prophesies and is unable to carry out his jealous vengeance on David because he's engaged by the Holy Spirit in this act of prophecy. And he's left at the end of the chapter prophesying naked and pinned to the ground. And so you see the Holy Spirit of God working upon him to restrain his own evil. And so you get this picture of, oh, there's so much potential for this King Saul he looks the part, he acts the part, he's what we're looking for, he's a mighty man of valor, he's descended of this tribe of, of warriors, um, he's t- head taller than everybody else, he's attractive, he's strong, he's fearless, he's the guy we're after, but he is ridiculously occupied with himself and ultimately trying to maintain control and goes absolutely crazy. And even in the midst of his own jealousy and vengeance, God even sends a pa- an evil spirit to torment him, which is another one of our questions we got. Um, in uh, chapter 16 and verse 15 and others, um, is it God, is God sending an evil spirit? This may blow your minds a little bit to think about is God, so is God doing evil or how is God, how is God doing this? Okay, so you're going to see this happen in the scriptures a number of times where there is um, some, I don't, I don't want to call it symbiotic work, but maybe synergistic work between um, powers of evil and powers of God. And the point in all of those, and I'll give you an example. So the, the prologue to Job, we are given a, a kind of sovereign insight into the suffering of Job and the reason for it. Now, his friends do not have that sovereign oversight of what's going on here. And so in the narrative, 
they come along with the presumption that he has sinned and his sin is the reason for his cursing. And if he would just repent before God, then this all the suffering would end. But Job knows he's done nothing wrong, but he can't be vindicated by human wisdom. And so he has no voice before God. And so he just continues to entrust himself to God who does good and does bad. And he's saying that's above me. And so the whole book is about that. But we see there's this, this movement, um, there's a motive, a motive of God to draw attention to the faith of Job in this kind of council of heavenly beings, among whom is the adversary, the Satan, the the enemy of God, the accuser. And so God gives Satan carte blanche uh, with except for touching uh, Job's physical body. And then round two, he says, you can just do everything short of death to push this guy to the edge as a way of justifying the worthiness of God to be trusted and worshiped. And so God is uh, God has an agenda. The enemy has an agenda. They are definitely not the same, but they are working in cohort. And so this is something we see in the scriptures. There's also, we're going to get into the, um, the book of, I think it's in 2 Kings, and there's a reference to God saying among the heavenly host, who, who will be a lying spirit to go for me to deceive the king? And you're like, what? God's looking for someone to lie? And, um, and, and even in, in Deuteronomy, we saw some passages where God's saying, if one, of the, if one of the prophets who you know to be a prophet says to you, let's go off and worship other gods, it's a test. So God's saying, God's not in a box of, of his own making. He, he can go anywhere, do anything, and he has all the tools at his uh, disposal to, and, and not in a guilty way in order to carry out his purposes. And so, yes, he sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. Yeah, and one thing I want to just harp on is that this is not dualism. It's not good versus evil, and they're equally powered. Mm -hmm. Uh, God is all-powerful and all-good and all-loving, and he uses evil to help accomplish his purposes because he's sovereign in those ways. And I think just to harp on things that we've said in the past podcast, it's up to us, even though, you know, from, from what I see just in this passage in 15, Saul's servant, like that might be an accurate account of what Saul's servant said, not saying that Saul's servant is correct. Cause we, we, I mean, those are only three instances that right. we just labeled in all of the scripture. Right. So there's no way that we can understand or completely, uh, you know, define the divine counsel and how that works. How, and, yeah, exactly. and, you know, is that how yeah. God relates it to us? Right. You know, so like our job is to say, God, you're holy and set mm-hmm. apart and how you do things. I trust in your, in how you do things, just like you were saying about David. Yes. Yeah. And that's the thing too, where David continues to, without complete understanding. So the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children uh, forever. And so th- this is part of having the fear of the Lord and a disposition before Yahweh, the creator of all things expressed in the eternal son, Jesus, that we follow by faith, who has demonstrated his faithful love and his, his character and self-sacrificing death and the power of his atonement and then the, the infilling of his Holy Spirit. Like, we have nothing to doubt in God, but we will not understand God fully. And we are not given, um, we're not given heavenly insight into every component of what goes on beyond the veil. And so this is something that we just have to kind of come to those scriptures with some humility and then recognize, like, God is who he says he is. And so things may surprise us, but that doesn't Uh, That just means we haven't got everything all figured out. You'll also notice in um, 1 Samuel, there's a a large emphasis on the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. We saw that in um, Hannah's song in um, chapter 2. We are going to see that in what I think is one of the key verses um, when God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons. And of course, Samuel, who had seen God's choice of Saul sets his eyes on David or Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and says in his mind or out loud, surely 
the, this is the Lord's anointed. Like, this has got to be the guy. And then in verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then we have this demonstration right after this in 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath, which is obviously an epic chapter in the Old Testament and that we gave no attention to uh, this past weekend. But that's on that's fully demonstrated. Like this little piece right here gets gets fully extrapolated in the story of David and Goliath. David comes as a servant. He comes to deliver cheese and food to his brothers. His brothers are annoyed at his presence. They're annoyed that he's asking any questions. Why are you taking? It's nothing to do with you. You're a peon. Like get out of here. Stop talking to people and stop asking questions and stop. This is not for you. And and David is filled with zeal. Because uh, Goliath, the Philistine, or the, the champion of the Philistines, we don't know that he's a Philistine, but he's the giant and he is commenced by the Philistines to stand in defiance of the armies of Israel and Israel's God. And David said, who, who, who do you think you are defying the, uh, the Lord's army this way? And are, is no one going to do anything about this? And this is David. He could be 14, 15 years old at this point. Like we don't have an actual age, but he was obviously still not fully physically developed. Uh, height difference there. And, and uh, he's still run, doing the errands of a young son and not of uh, a military age son. And so he's certainly under 20, but likely even younger than that. And so he's just ready to go hard against Goliath with no fear because he knows that God is on his side. And so here you get the same um, self-sacrificing, bold willingness in this heart that's after the, the purposes and the name of God. And he is unwilling to let, um, to let this defiance go uh, unmatched. And so you get this beautiful story of uh, David against Goliath, which is going to be balanced and closed up when we get to uh, the epilogue of 2 Samuel, which we'll talk about next week. Um, but I just love this, this kind of picture where we, we end up seeing that the source of David's strength is not by might, just like Hannah said, but it is his faith in the Lord and his fulfilling of God's purposes no matter the cost. And so this is where God's elevating David. This is where this begins. And of course, this the elevation of David in his humility is what brings about and provokes the jealousy of Saul. When Saul has uh, Saul has destroyed his struck down his thousands and David his tens thousands, and Saul says, "Oh, ho, ho, ho. Well, he doesn't. He can't have David be more popular than him." And uh, his eyes are always fixed on the people. He moves out of fear of what the people will do. When everybody, anybody starts moving, he has to take action in order to maintain control over them. He's constantly aware of the perception of others. And so here's a deeply insecure person who is really ruled by what other people think of him and how they act and what they want um, versus David who's principled and whose source is is uh, Yahweh's God. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of fuzzy middle stories that are in 1 Samuel, um, the nature and character of David's relationship to Jonathan. Um, they're fast friends. There's a lot of textual critics and progressives that would like to see something inappropriate going on between Jonathan and David uh, because of the songs of David where he talks about uh, the love of Jonathan being better than that of a woman. And like, is this like some kind of homosexual relationship? And as it, totally not the case. This is like a picture of like, uh, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, kind of a, an idea here. And so David and Jonathan were fast friends. Um, I think though, there's also, at least in my reading, and Bill, I'd love to get your input on this. I've read this this book a number of times, and in this most recent reading, one of the things that I've noticed about Saul and all of his descendants is they are quite opportunistic. 
and their behavior over time reveals that. So for instance, Michael, his daughter, um, David passes on Merab. Who, who am I to be the king's son, right? You remember this? This is the oldest daughter of, of um, Saul. And then later, it seems like there's some interest in the text between David and Michael, Saul's daughter. And then Saul's looking for a way to kill David. And so he says, bring me the foreskins of the Philistines for my daughter's hand. And of course, David's, he's a rock star, so he goes and does it, right? Not what Saul was expecting. Not to mention he brings twice as many. Twice as many, <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Here you go. How about these apples? And uh, Evie's so funny. Our daughter, she's 13. She was asking about that. And um, she said, uh, I don't understand all the foreskins. And she said, what kind of animal is a foreskin? <laughs> <laughs> I said, baby, those, those aren't skins from an animal. She was like, those are from people? <laughs> But later, later you see um, after David is banished and Michael turns on him. So at first she hides him, remember? And there's this phrase in there. It says that she laid out um, the household idol as the head and the goat's hair blanket to make it look like David was sick in bed. And of course, Saul then's like, bring him sick in his bed. I'll kill him sick. Like, bring him to me, the whole thing. And um, so she starts by helping David. But as soon as David is gone... She immediately turns on David to her father. He was going to kill me. And she starts to make up all this stuff about David. It's not totally not true. And so she's, like her father, responding to whatever the situation calls for out of self-interest. And then she's given marriage to another man. And she has children with that man. And then David, when he becomes king, he wants her back. And so he goes and gets her. He sends, I believe it's Abner. He sends Abner to go get her. And then, or Joab, I can't remember actually. Oh, it's, Ab- it's Abner. So Abner brings her back. And then when he brings the ark into Jerusalem, it says that she despised him for his, uh, his acts of worship. Remember the story where he's dancing before the Lord and she's like, you're making a fool of yourself. And, and like there's this uh, animosity that's there between the two of them. And then it says that she never had any children for David after that. And so like there's a judgment against her because of that. And so you get this, this picture of like, man, Michael's like, she's shifty. And then that makes me ask the question about Jonathan too, right? So Jonathan, by all rights of kings, ought to be the next in line, right? And yet he has this um, faithful love towards David. He's constantly, and in David, I mean, Jonathan's, Jonathan's a, a soldier in his own right. He provokes the first war with the Philistines. He goes up when, when the, the Israelites have no swords, He's like the only one with the sword. He and his armor bearer go up and they slay the outpost, the garrison of the Philistines and provoke the first war. And then the Lord responds by defeating the Philistines on their behalf. So this, this, this guy's no joke. Like he's not, he's not, he's no, not playing second fiddle. But I think he recognizes that David is in fact the anointed and is going to be king. And so he starts to what seems to me to be like sucking up to him a little bit. Like, hey, I am no threat to you. I am your buddy. I am going to be right, your right-hand man. Because traditionally, when a new king of a new family was anointed, he would execute all of the sons of the previous king. So there would be no rival kings. Now, this isn't David. David was not that kind of a person. But this is what would be expected in the culture. And so we get Jonathan really, like, getting himself very comfortable with David. And you have, I have no idea what his expectations are. On the one hand, if David does become king, I don't want him to be my enemy. But if I become king, I can do whatever I want. And so I, I have David's loyalty and support for as long as I need it. So I'm not quite sure about Jonathan. I have big questions about the motives of Jonathan and how we're supposed to take the descriptions of Jonathan through Samuel 
to get a picture of him. But I, you will see throughout all of the descendants, the only descendant that stands out is Mephibosheth, who is the son of Saul, who is uh, lame in his feet and whom David brings into his home. And so everybody else lacks a certain humility and is um, somewhat opportunistic. I don't know if you noticed that or not. I think uh, if I'm going to comment on uh, Michal, when um, in when David brings the ark back, I, it just dawned on me in this reading, like, why is she so upset? Right. Like, why why is she so mad that David is, like, going all out before the Lord? Like, uh, you know, more more or less, you know, doing things that kings don't do. Right. And, and it dawned on me that Saul Public was her perception. father, right? And yeah. like, if she's used to how Saul would, you know, it's just so concerned about public perception yep. and doing the things that make him look good and saving face. I was like, oh, well, that's why, right? Because that would, that would be what she's experienced as what the king is supposed to do. Yeah. So it's like David's doing something totally opposite, being like indignant before the Lord. Right. Or not indignant, sorry. Uh, undignified. Undignified, yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally different. Yeah. But, but yeah. so that's like interesting. And then I think for Jonathan though, like, I mean, I feel like I've had maybe even this experience, like growing up with like best friends, you know, like mm-hmm. his, his love for David seems stronger than like his love for his father. Like it's oh, that, definitely. that like chesed mm-hmm. love, which is like that covenantial steadfast faithfulness. Cause he even does things. He's like, basically like, you know, like, I don't care if you get the kingdom. Like, I mean, that's what it seems like to me, at mm-hmm. least when I'm reading through, he's like, you know, he's just like, uh, you know, just good faith towards David. And I mean, isn't uh, Mephibosheth is his son? Isn't yes, his yeah, son. So it's like, yeah. maybe that's why we see the, the turn from him because maybe Jonathan is his dad and he's different than Saul is. So yeah, maybe that is, maybe that's the point. I don't point. know. Yeah. I had a really hard time figuring out the author's intent. Are we trying to present Jonathan as not like his father and faithful to David, but he succumbs to the same death as his father at the same time as his father. And I mean, David obviously honors both of them. In, out of faithful love, like he's like he 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 honors them in life and in death. Um, but yeah, I'm not quite sure. And do you think like um, first thing that comes to mind is like that like God had prophesied about Saul because Saul had turned away from the Lord. Like yeah. that was his reasoning for you know Jonathan was also I guess we could see use the word victim like mm-hmm. of that of Saul's actions. Like hey, I'm going to turn away from the Lord because then the people would immediately turn and say, oh well, Jonathan's king. Right, you know, and then we get we get that story later, but where you know with Abner and his other son, but yeah, it's like kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of twists and turns that I still don't have quite worked out. Maybe my third or fourth time through in six months, it'll stand out to me. But I was thinking about um, Saul, Saul and the Witch of Endor, and this is like another. We didn't talk about this story at all, but this is so Saul. Saul was known for having banished all of the. Um, necromancers, so as, which would have been a righteous thing to do. This is like this is very much in keeping with the having copied or read the law, which he should have, according to Deuteronomy 17. He should have read like you're going to push all, you can tear down the high places and push out the false gods, and you're going to wipe off the planet, the enemies of God, the influences of evil, and this is one of those things. And so he does that, and then after the death, you know, Samuel rejects him. But then after the death of Samuel, he's going up to, in battle and he doesn't know if he's going to win. So he's seeking the Lord and the Lord's not answering him. The Lord's left him. He's like, I'm, we're done. And so you get this really interesting story in chapter 28 where Saul disguises himself, finds a um, underground uh, sorceress, witch or medium, necromancer, um, speaker of the dead, and then goes to her um under kind of covert ops 
And even she's like, listen, uh, Saul, Saul, the King Saul does not want this happening. I cannot get, be associated with this. I have the power to do this, but I don't want to get in trouble for this. And he's like, no, 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 no. Everything's gonna be fine. Of course, it's hit. she doesn't know it's Saul himself who's doing this cloaked in darkness. And so Saul literally conjures Samuel from the dead and dead Samuel prophesies the final destruction of Saul, which you're like, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> is this like, and the, I mean, the way it's presented in the text is this is Samuel. He is dead and he is prophesying out of the grave. And what he says actually comes to pass showing that he is, it's true. So like it's bringing about this reality. And we talked to our daughter about this too. Like just because something's prohibited and evil doesn't mean it's not real. Like there's powers of darkness and there is, there is witchcraft and sorcery and there is conjuring of things that we are prohibited from crossing over. And here again, we get this picture of like God, God saying, here's a clear delineation between heaven and earth, light and darkness, and you are to stay on this side. You may not go on this other side, even though it's possible. There are methods and means by which we can do that. And Saul here does a great evil by doing this. And what, but what is revealed to him is true, and that is that he is he's going to die and his son with him. And then I think it's very interesting with that knowledge that he still goes right into that same situation, and that whole that whole thing is completely carried out. He ends up he ends up dead, and so does Jonathan. And um, this happens, and there's an, there's another one of these stories that I just still don't have my hands around completely. And this is when, of course, David, who's been banished, has left Israel and is is um, hiding out in the land of Israel's enemies and he's got all these mighty men with him and this rabble of like you know ex-cons and and people running from debts and all you know he's got this little six group of 600 and he's they're just raiding the enemies of Israel in the Negev the desert areas on the perimeter of the promised land and then he has this uh, kind of faithful relationship with this king of the Philistines and when the Philistines are going to war against Saul and Jonathan and the armies of Israel, um, this guy's like, okay, David, you're coming to fight with us. And then the other five kings, other four of the five kings are like, listen, we don't trust this guy at all. He's an Israelite. He's going to turn on us in two seconds and join our enemies and, you know, stab us in the back. And so the king's like, well, I trust him. But since you guys don't, he tells David to leave. This is when David goes back to find that his his um, homestead there had been ransacked and all their stuff stolen and all their wives and children carried off and and the story goes on where some of the men go to rescue their their women and they find the Egyptian slave and he tells them where they were and they get everybody back and there's a dispute about who gets what and yada yada. But my, the thing that stands out to me is what would have happened if that had not been the case? What would have happened if David had actually gone to fight against Saul in this battle? Because David is like Mr. Faithful and he's standing by his word to this Philistine king having been ousted by Saul. And now he's in between having to show faithful steadfastness to his the enemy of God fighting the nation of God and what would have happened in that situation and the, there's no resolution in the text at all yeah i don't know because uh when remember when he's there he's like raiding all of these cities in the negev and he's like totally destroying it because dead men tell no tales cuz he didn't want it to come back to the philistines right. so I mean, technically, he's like sitting there lying to the Philistines. To, to the enemies. Like, oh, I raided Israel and I took their stuff. Like yep. he's like trying to make a case for his lo- loyalty to Philistia. Yeah. And so I don't know, but like that would have been a weird situation it for been, him. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the maybe the other kings were right to not trust him, and maybe his his um, covenant faithfulness lied lied elsewhere. Yeah, and this time, even reading through that part. Um, I realized that it may have been beneficial. Like maybe that's all like the God's working it out because when they take 
uh, overtake the Amalekites, uh, destroy them, and like take all of their spoil because they had much spoil, including all of the stuff that they had. And then he sends gifts to all these right. cities in like you know that lower part of Judah or whatever, mm-hmm. as like a you know because then he becomes king basically next. He's yep. like, hey, here you go. This I just wanted to send you this little little, little gift. Th- yeah, a little something something. <laughs> I was thinking of you. <laughs> Oh my goodness! So it, uh, the the overall push in First Samuel, and again, these are these are these two halves are one literary work, First and Second Samuel. So we're covering the first half um, because of length, and that's actually the reason why we have two books of Samuel. So Samuel was always one book, but uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, when they were copied, Samuel was too long to fit on one scroll. And so it was divided between first and second Samuel just for just for scroll length. So this is one literary work originally con- constructed largely from the first half, largely from the testimony and narrative and record keeping of Samuel and then of Nathan and Gad and other sources. And then some compiler in the, the period of a divided kingdom uh, put this all together. And that's where we get kind of the, the finished product. So this is just beautiful and brilliant, um, and the composition's incredible. Um, but the point of this, in this first half especially, where there's this contrast between the rise and fall of Saul and the elevation of David, and First Samuel kind of concludes with uh, David, the kingship of David over a unified kingdom, and this is the hinge point, and this is why it's obviously a clean break, and why you get 31 chapters of First Samuel and only 24 of second is because this is obviously a great spot to split the, the narrative. It's balanced in the text. Um, the, but the point here is very clearly that God opposes the proud and God exalts the humble. And so David is the, the type of the typified, humble, uh, Godward, um, selfless, uh, subjecting of himself and his wants and desires to the purposes of God in his generation. And he is over time exalted, but it is not without great cost. And so this is a thing I just wanted to kind of end uh, this week's midweek podcast talking about because um, we, where we live in such an instant society, like we're in such a microwave society, um, like we, we expect things to happen for us immediately. And even the, the most powerful pre- uh, promises of God that each of us kind of stand on, like they are meant to be fulfilled over time in a relationship with God that is built upon humble dependence and patient endurance. And that's what the Christian life is meant to look like. And this is, you know, throughout the scriptures, I think about even like the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul took his name. His name was given to him Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He took the name of Israel's first king. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, leading among his class, studied under Gamaliel. I mean, this is This is a guy who's very, very, very well acquainted with the Old Testament, memorized most, if not all of it, understood the life, the success, and the failure of his namesake, the Apostle Paul. He has an encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Literally, Jesus reveals himself to him in in some physical form where he is knocked to the ground, blinded, and commissioned into the service of the kingdom of Jesus and changes completely overnight from being a persecutor of the church of Christ to, to the promoter and the, and the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And yet he hid away for 14 years before his ministry began. And so like part of 
following God and walking in the anointing that God has for us and seeing ourselves capable of walking in the work that God calls us into requires a period of waiting. And in that period of waiting, a humble, Godward, dependent, uh, just relentless pursuit of God in whatever it is that he has called us to. And there isn't enough of that spirit in our culture. There, there isn't enough of, especially in the young, the youngest generation, you know, we talk about the difference in generations and, you know, we're, we're looking to a generation now who grew up with a cell phone in their pocket with instant access to every question through Google searches or Yahoo searches back in the day. But some, you know, we, we had to wait for dial up, but we had instant access to all the world's knowledge. And there's just, there's just a lack of really understanding what patient endurance looks like. And so there can be a perception that if God doesn't do it immediately or quickly, that he's not going to do it. And so there's so much just turning from God and forgetting of God's purposes. But we are serving an eternal God with eternal purposes who is carrying out his plan for the redemption of humankind over the centuries, over the millennia. And there there are people who have these roles to play. Now Samuel highlights, obviously, the main characters of Samuel, Saul, and David and their role in that. And obviously there's a central role there and there's a fame there and a remembrance, but like there are so many names in Samuel, so many people by name and who their father was and where they came from and what part they played. I'm sure you got lost in just trying to pronounce them, let alone remember who they were. And yet this is the significance in the calling. Every single one of us has a part to play. The question is, do we have a disposition of submission to the Lord? Are we, are we coming to the Lord in a humble God's God centered Godward willingness to, to give our lives over to him for his purposes, whatever that may look like. And no, we're not all going to be King. Uh, no, we're not all going to be superstars. We're not all going to be uh, rich or it's not about us. All of those things are the things that is like the disposition of Saul. Like what is in this for me? What am I going to get out of this? And how do I maintain control of it? And that is not the disposition as God is after. And so for, for any of you who are listening, who are in a holding pattern, and most of the time we are, and if it's not for one thing, it'll be for another. You know, David spent um, years as king in this elevated position and also like in, in waiting for a lot of other things, like who, who was going to be this forever king and when, how was God going to redeem the mistakes that he had made and what was going to happen with Solomon? And I mean, the waiting doesn't end. It gets redirected, but this is what God is calling us into. And if I could just read from Philippians 2, uh, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's just like, you know, that's our model. Just like, um, I think we've been talking about the worship team about like uh, washing feet. And Jesus says like, just as I've done to you guys, you go out and do the same. Like go out and serve people like be, be humble. And like, just, we were saying like the humility is what God exalts. And here's Jesus humbling himself to the death, the point of death on a cross, like yep. a curse. Yep. He's being accursed and God exalts him. Yes. And so it's like, you know, don't go attempt to 
weasel your way in there or squirm your way into a position because if you let God work out your character, Mm -hmm. if you let him iron out the things inside of you that need to get fixed, like you could be like Saul and be burning that sacrifice too early. Yep. You could have waited 10 more minutes for Samuel. I don't know. Exactly. You know, just let God trust him to establish you in your position, in whatever position he's called you to, because maybe you're not ready yet for the next thing. And I know like for me, even growing up in the microwave culture, right. that we're in now is like, you know, God's, I feel like I've gotten words and, and prophetic things like that are happening now that were told to me like 10 years ago. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I remember being so frustrated and now I'm like, Oh, this is how God works. He has, he needs not that he needs time, but like his way is to take time to set things up, to do things his way. And it's my job to submit to that and be humble. Yes. And part of this, part of this is the God word attitude because I can remember myself 23 years ago, when I felt called into ministry and at the time I was like I never would have thought this is the course of uh, that I would have taken but like in that youthful arrogance you're like well obviously you know like here it's so clear obviously this I'm like made for this like let's just get this thing done and you're imagining you're on a three-year track or a five-year track or a seven-year track only to find out that no there's 20 and 30 and 40 years of slogging through in faithful service to God and it's not about the things that you think it's about and so we want to not necessarily, and I said this in one of the services, or maybe two of them, um, that true humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's not about me going, oh, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful, I'm so blah, blah, whatever. But it's thinking of yourself less. And the less preoccupied with self we are and the more preoccupied with God we are, that is where we begin to walk in true humility. And we get to walk the path that God has for us. The, my, my pastor growing up and the founding pastor of the church that we adopted and that we're now sitting in the building of, he used to liken it to um, walking his dogs. He was a dog guy. And it was just talking about having like a dog so like at the end of the leash, just tight and the net, your net, and dog's neck's all, oh, I can't breathe and it's yapping and barely. And like that is not the way to walk. <laughs> like if you just like let off a little tiny bit and walk at the same pace as your owner, there's a beautiful experience to be had that doesn't involve you choking and you're not going to get there any sooner. And so like, take one step back and walk next to God and walk with him and make it about the time you have with him and the purposes he has and go where he's going. And so this gets picked up in the New Testament of walking according to the spirit in, um, in the services this past weekend and my kind of final preparation, understanding that, that Samuel is bringing about this, this, uh, this kind of choice of two paths between humility and pride and encapsulating that in God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble or exalts the humble um, I brought three passages that I felt like God wanted to possibly use. And one of them was the one you just read in Philippians 2. And the other I, I ended up using in all three, which was First Peter 5. Um, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And it is, it is a mighty hand. Like well, That's where I want to be. I want to be right under the mighty hand of God. I am not mighty. I am not God. But by humility, I can place myself under his mighty hand. Um, but in the first service, I felt particularly compelled to spend the extra time to read Isaiah 53, 13 through, or 52, 13 through 53, 12, which is the suffering servant passage. And part of the reason for that is 52, 13 says, behold, my servant. And so you get this picture like Paul uses in Philippians of a servant taking the form of a servant shall act wisely. This is the ability to the fear of the Lord to orient the course of one's life and one's purpose according to God's direction. And it says at the very outset, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
And then the whole section flows through his suffering and rejection and death. And you're like, that's not high and exalted. And yet the outcome of that is that it was the will of God in verse 10 of chapter 53 to crush him. And he has put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And so there is life, fruitfulness, and and uh, eternity in the purpose of God. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, there it is again, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so we have the saving work of Jesus through this this uh, humility, through this servanthood, through this willingness to even to die. And then it ends with, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil from the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And here you have the perpetual priesthood of Christ, our King, who has conquered and is bringing us into the spoils of his supernatural war in his conquering kingdom. And so like that passage also just really descriptively brings us into the nature and character of Christ. David obviously becomes a type and a foreshadow of that, not a perfect one, which we're going to see next week, but um, it's Christ who fulfills that perfectly. And so as much as we are in him, we can have the mind of Christ, like we saw in Philippians 2. We can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, like we see in 1 Peter. And we can take on a slow and low personal development as we make ourselves Godward in our in our submission to God's purposes and ultimately uh, pursuing that humility that he holds out for us. So that's 1 Samuel, some of it. <laughs> There's lots more. Um, join us uh, next week when we jump into 2 Samuel, and uh, we look forward to seeing you this Sunday. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.